he sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on his, the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray once more. O gracious, merciful Heavenly Father, we thank you that the word has now been spoken, and we ask for your spirit to take your word and to plant it deeply in our hearts, to use your word to bring comfort or conviction, a challenge, whatever it is, do it all for your glory and the good of your church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. In the past few Sundays, we've been going through a mini-series in the book of Jonah with a particular focus on missions. We are doing this as we lead up to the missions conference that's going to be happening in town uh, at the end of the, of the month. Uh, if you want more information about that conference, it's called CMC South, and we have some people in the lobby after service to tell you more about it. Uh, there still is room for you to register. Um, but I know when you think of this book of Jonah, I would guess that your first thought is probably about, like, the whale and not so much about missions. You know, I, I think the focus on Jonah and all of his adventures, I get it. It's totally understandable. But I would argue that global missions is actually at the heart of this well-known story. I mean, in chapter 1, we already saw how Yahweh, how he uses a very reluctant missionary to reveal himself to a crew of very pagan mariners. And then in chapter 3, God uses that same reluctant but now reproved missionary to spark a revival in a wicked pagan city like Nineveh. And so, so far in this book, all of the peoples who are being transformed by the grace of God have so far been Gentiles. And not only people who are outside of the covenant community of God's people, but we're talking about people of very different languages and ethnicities and cultures. And so there is definitely a missionary impulse in every chapter of this little book. And so as we conclude this series by looking at chapter 4, what I want us to talk about this morning is to try to see what can really hinder the work of missions in this world. 
about what could stifle the proclamation of the gospel among the nations of the earth. And I'm not talking particularly about the tightening of security that's happening in certain countries. I know those are present realities that are making our task very difficult. But the hindrances, actually, that chapter 4 are talking about are, are not coming from external pressures or external persecution. No, it comes from within. It's an inter- internal attitude, an internal mindset. It really comes down to self-righteousness. It comes down to a sense of entitlement. It comes down to too high a view of yourself or of humanity in general. If you think about it, self-righteousness has a way of dampening missionary fervor in one of two different ways. It could lead you to assume that certain people don't deserve God's salvation or that they don't even need it. It's two different conclusions, but I would argue that both are rooted in self-righteousness and both are going to hinder missions. So on one hand, a self-righteous attitude can lead you to treat certain people as less deserving of salvation. And so we hear stories about religious extremists in a Muslim-dominant nation suicide bombing churches or executing Christian missionaries. And some people are going to react by saying, well, hey, look, if they don't want to hear about Jesus, if they're going to be so hostile and violent in their response, then just move on. Missionary, you tried your best. Move on. Move on to a more receptive people group. That's one way that self-righteousness can express itself. We look past people that we deem to be undeserving based on their actions, based on their response. But, you know, there's another way, another way that self-righteousness can hinder missions, and it, it really was on display recently when we heard news about a remote tribal group that killed an American missionary. A common reaction in the news was to criticize the missionary for disturbing this uncontacted, unengaged people group. Leave them alone, we often heard people say. Why are these Western imperialists always imposing their religion on these innocent natives? But that response is rooted in a naively optimistic assessment of humanity in general. It assumes the existence of some sort of primitive innocence that we mustn't disturb. But really, that's just another form of self-righteousness, a self-righteous view of humanity in general. And so whether you think certain people don't deserve God's salvation or you think they don't need it, That kind of thinking, either way, is rooted in self-righteousness, and that's why it's so toxic for missions. Self-righteous people make terrible missionaries. I I really think that's the main point of Jonah chapter 4. So this morning, friends, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how self-righteousness does affect missions. And I've got three points for you. If you want to follow along, look in in your bulletin. There's an outline. First, self-righteousness blinds us to the nature of mercy. Secondly, self-righteousness dulls our compassion for the lost. And third, self-righteousness must be confronted by the compassion of God. Okay, so let's start by considering how self-righteousness 
can blind us to the nature of mercy. And this is really seen in Jonah's reaction to all the events that occurred in chapter 3. Remember last week, we saw how Jonah came around to, to heeding God's call to go to Nineveh and preach a message of doom and gloom. He warned the citizens about a coming overthrow of their great city in just 40 days. Now, you know, I, I know some people are going to just hear that, and they're going to consider that, that, that message of doom and gloom to be so merciless. How, how can God threaten to destroy a whole city, including women and children and, 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 and all the cattle? What, what happened to his mercy? But don't you see? His threats and warnings are mercy. You, you do realize he didn't have to warn them, right? I mean, he, he, didn't warn, he didn't warn Sodom. He didn't warn Gomorrah. He just destroyed those cities without a threat or warning. But in this case, God did give Nineveh a warning. He gave them a chance. He gave them 40 days to respond favorably and to repent. That is mercy. And for Jonah, that's a problem. At the conclusion of chapter 3, the Ninevites repent and God mercifully relents. And then it says in verse 1 of chapter 4, but it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. The Hebrew says it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. It was ra'ah. That's the Hebrew word for evil here. It was ra'ah. Now, now, now what's so evil in his mind. Well, the it in verse 1 is referring to really what we read back in chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, they turned from their Ra, God relented of the disaster. Same word, Ra'ah. He relented of the Ra'ah that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. What a contrast here. Notice this contrast. When the Ninevites turn from their evil, God calls their turning away good, and he turns from his anger. But Jonah observes the exact same turn of events, and he calls it evil. He gets angry to Jonah. This is all a disaster. Now, verse 2 helps us to get into his head. Now we know, because of verse 2, why he abandoned his missionary task back in chapter 1. And the irony is, he didn't fear failure. He actually feared success. He wasn't afraid that these godless Ninevites would hurt him. He was afraid they would actually listen to him and repent of their sins. Look at verse 2. Oh, Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Remember back in chapter 3, the king of Nineveh, he didn't know what kind of God that they were dealing with, right? That's why he said in chapter 3, verse 9, who knows? 
Let's, let's repent of our sins, and perhaps God will relent. Who knows? He didn't know. The Ninevites, they didn't know, but Jonah knew. Jonah knew all along what kind of God that they're dealing with. He just didn't care to share that knowledge because he knew that this is a God who is so merciful that if a wicked king and his wicked people were to actually heed a divine warning, and for one day out of all the many evil days of their existence, for that one day just fall on their face in repentance, then this merciful God would relent. And that thought sickened Jonah. God's steadfast love and mercy made him sick. He goes on to say in verse 3, he would rather die than to witness this show of mercy to the Ninevites. But again, that's just another bit of irony in this story. Because remember back in chapter 2, Jonah was, was all praising God for his mercy. While in the belly of the fish, Jonah was thanking God for saving his life. And now here he's asking God to take his life. In the belly of the fish, he was so thankful for God's steadfast love. It was an attribute worth praising in chapter 2, verse 8. But now he considers that same steadfast love as a weakness in God. It's the reason why he is sparing these Ninevites. And so Jonah is dealing with the same God, and the same steadfast love, and yet, in these two different incidences, he has two different reactions. Why is that? What's the difference? It's the same God. It's the same love. Why different reactions? Well, isn't it obvious? The difference is the object of God's steadfast love. In chapter 2, God, Jonah considers the object of that love to be deserving, namely himself. He was saved from the sea by the whale. But in chapter 4, the object of steadfast love, this wicked city of Nineveh to Jonah is undeserving. And so it's clear by now that Jonah didn't fear the Ninevites. He despised them. He looked down upon them. He felt morally superior to them. And that is what we call self-righteousness. It's where you agree that Everyone's a sinner, but there are sinners, and then there are sinners. You know, Jonah, he wouldn't hesitate to admit that he's a sinner, but he, he probably justified himself by thinking, well, at least I'm not a Ninevite. Like, those guys are really bad. They're, they're, they're the really big sinners. They're undeserving. And so Jonah had no problem with God's mercy as long as God's mercy was being shown to the right people. But of course, that just proves that he doesn't really understand mercy, that he's blind to its limitless nature. And self-righteousness is really to blame. It's what's blinding him. It convinces you that certain people are less deserving than you. Now, let's just think about how it affects us. So when we see or... When we hear testimonies of God's mercy and saving great sinners or, or, or saving collective groups of people who have been extremely hostile to the faith, there is often a, a deep suspicion in our initial reactions. 
it, we hesitate to immediately call it a good thing. So, you know, just imagine if a, if a confessed serial killer or child pornographer testifies to having trusted Christ for salvation. Or just imagine if, if ISIS members who are guilty of beheading Christians and bombing churches were now to testify of having been saved by grace through faith. Imagine that all it took, all it took was one act of repentance and God turns from his fierce anger against them and he relents. He doesn't bring down on their heads a cold, hard justice, but instead a loving, gentle mercy. What would you call that? Would you call it a good thing? Or is that evil? Is that a praiseworthy turn of events? Or is that a disaster? Is that a, tra a travesty of justice? What would your reaction be? Now, I, I admit it's, it is hard to accept. You can commit all of these heinous atrocities, and you can hurt so many people, and yet all it takes is one act of repentance? How can God let them get away with it? Well, first of all, you need to keep this distinction in mind here. God, he can forgive someone for the most heinous and atrocious of sins, and yet, that divine forgiveness does not negate or render useless our human efforts to bring about an exact justice on earth. So just because someone has been saved by the mercy of God doesn't mean that they should now be released from prison or that they should no longer be prosecuted for their crimes. You can be forgiven in the courtroom of heaven but still be subject to human courts and be subject to human systems of law and order. So please keep that distinction in mind. But secondly, let's not, let's not confuse the gospel. When God forgives great sinners of their great sins, he is not letting them get away with it. No, all of their sins are completely and justly dealt with. They are fully punished. The righteous sword of blind justice has fallen. But because of their faith in Christ, it has fallen not on their heads, but on the head of their Savior who died for them. That's the gospel, and that's the same gospel hope that we cling to as Christians. But self-righteousness will try to convince us that the sins of some people are just categorically different than our own. Look, no one's going to disagree that, th that there is a difference between bombing a church full of worshipers and your prideful thoughts. There is a difference. But you have to realize that if the only sin Jesus was sent to atone for was your prideful thoughts, like if that was his only mission for coming to earth, he still would have had to die on the cross. Even if it was just for your sins alone, he still would have had to die. And so in view of God's perfect holiness and justice, 
your conventional sins and the sins of terrorists and murderers and rapists, they all stand equally condemned and they equally require the death of the Son of God for forgiveness to be made. And so, friends, the whole point of this mercy that comes from God in the gospel is that no one deserves it. God's steadfast love and mercy is freely given to the undeserving, and of course that includes us as much as it includes all those great sinners out there in the world. Now, what that means for missions, what that means for global missions is that there are no peoples in this world who are too idolatrous in their practices or too entrenched in their ideologies or too hostile towards Christianity to be objects of God's steadfast love and mercy. Self-righteous people don't see that, and that's why it makes them terrible missionaries. They are blind to the nature of God's mercy, which then reinforces a callousness that we have in our hearts towards the lost. And so this leads to our second point. Self-righteousness has a way of dulling our compassion for the lost. If we think some people don't deserve or, or need God's salvation, then it makes sense that we feel very little urgency to make the necessary sacrifices to go and bring them the gospel of Jesus. So let's see how this all works out in in Jonah. We left him in verse 3, complaining that he would rather die than witness God showing mercy to the Ninevites. And in verse 4, God confronts his attitude by asking him, do you do well to be angry? In other words, Jonah, are are you justified in your anger? Are, Are you right to feel this way? Now, Jonah actually doesn't respond. Maybe he's so mad he's given God the silent treatment. But clearly he thinks that he has the right to be angry. He actually thinks God's not angry enough. If we keep reading in verse 5, it says, He went out of the city and he sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should see what would become of the city. So he wants to sit back and to see if God truly did relent. Because maybe God might, within these 40 days, change his mind, and he's going to destroy the city after all. So let's just sit back and see what happens. Now, as he waits, we're told that the sun is unbearable. It's beating down on him. And and in verse 6, God appoints a plant to spring up over him. And the text says that he was exceedingly glad because of the plant. There is finally a smile on his face the moment mercy starts blowing his way. Notice how verse 6 says uh, that God gave him the plant, verse 6, to save him from his disgust comfort. That's the, again, the same Hebrew word used earlier for evil. It's to save him from his ra'ah. So really, there's this double meaning going on here. On one level, on one level, God is shading Jonah from his discomfort, but on a deeper level, God is saving Jonah from his own evil. He is trying to expose Jonah's self-righteousness. And God does it by taking away 
the plant that he gave him the very next day. Look in verse 7. It says, the next day God appoints a worm to destroy the plant, and then he sends a scorching east wind. And once again, Jonah is, is livid. He is just furious. Take me now, Lord. It is better for me to die than to live, he says in verse 8. So again, he expresses his desire to die, just like he did back in verse 3. It's the same desire to die, but notice there are different triggers here. Back in verse 3, Jonah is disgusted when he sees God showing mercy to the Ninevites instead of showing them justice. Why are you being so compassionate to them? God, God, you don't make any sense. Just let me die. That was verse 3. But here in verse 8, Notice God is all about justice and no mercy. That's the exact thing that Jonah was asking for. God gives Jonah exactly what he deserves, a scorching. And now he complains, oh, Lord, why aren't you more compassionate? God, you don't make any sense. Let me die. The problem is, the problem is he just does not see his own wickedness. Jonah still doesn't think he is sinful to the core. He believes the Ninevites certainly are. They deserve bad things to happen to them, but not me. In verse 9, God asks him once again if he is justified to feel so angry, this time over this plant, to which Jonah answers this time. He says, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. But then verses 10 to 11, the Lord shows him the absurdity of his response and how he lacks any compassion for the lost. Verse 10, and the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. In other words, Jonah, you have so much compassion for this plant and you're not even its creator. You've only known this plant for how long? What, what, a day? One day? And you're this angry? You're this upset? But I, God, am creator of these Ninevites. I have endured their wickedness with great forbearance for centuries. Nineveh is a very old city. So you see, the Lord is, is using here a, a how much more argument. If Jonah has this much pity for a plant, a plant he's only known for a day, how much more pity should God have for this great city? But Jonah's self-righteousness has dulled his compassion, has hardened his heart, and he apparently has more compassion for a dead plant than for spiritually dead people. Now, before we get too hard on Jonah, church, let's just, let's just be sure to check our own hearts here. I mean, we, we might look at Jonah in shock and, and just wonder how he could be so calloused and care about a lost plant so much more than lost people. But then we realize, we realize don't we do the same thing? I mean, we tend to react in the same way when we lose the smallest of comforts and the most gratuitous of luxuries. I mean, just think about how sad we get when we lose our phone 
or, or how, how upset we get when, when, when we misplace our wallet or our purse. I mean, everything in our life just comes to a stop, right? I mean, we drop everything we are doing, and we are so focused on one task to find that lost item. We are retracing our steps. We're going back to the restaurant, going back to the store. We're getting on our spouse's phone to check, you know, find my phone app or what. You know, we, we're doing everything we can, and if we can't find it, it completely ruins our day, maybe our week, maybe even our whole month. We are just so upset. We pity the loss of these minor comforts and conveniences. We pity our lost phone, our lost wallet, our lost purse. But do we pity our lost neighbor, our lost classmates, our lost colleagues, or the billions of lost people in unreached regions of this earth. According to one of the most authoritative sources on unreached peoples, the Joshua Project, it says that out of the 17,000 distinct people groups in the world, 42% are considered unreached. And by unreached, it means these people groups lack enough Christians and resources to evangelize their own peoples without the help of outside assistance. Now, the vast majority, 83% of these unreached people groups, live in what is known commonly as the 1040 window. That's this region that belongs primarily in the Eastern Hemisphere, located between 10 and 40 degrees north of the equator. Now, many of these 1040 countries, you have to understand, are closed to missionaries. They don't want you there. They're not inviting you to come and, and bring us the gospel of Jesus. No, if, if, you, if you try, they're going to arrest you. They might even kill you. But what's so sad about the state of affairs is that these unreached people groups are not all living deep in some remote tropical forest or on some remote island totally cut off from modern civilization. No, if you were to travel to most of these places, you wouldn't have to search very hard if you wanted a Coke or if you were hungry for a Big Mac. That's what's sad. David Platt, who's going to be one of our speakers for CMC, David Platt says this, a soft drink company has done a better job getting brown sugar water to the nations than the church of Jesus Christ has done in getting the gospel to them. That's sad. So many peoples in the world who don't have access to the, to the gospel who are lost in their sins and heading towards an eternal hell. Church, do we get sad over that? We pity the lost iPhone, but do we pity the lost soul? We have so much compassion on inanimate objects, and we'll drop everything in our life to find them. How much more compassion and urgency and priorities should we have for the lost in the world, especially those living in unreached lands who don't even have a chance to hear about Jesus? 
I've been reading all of the news accounts that I can find about John Chow. He's that American missionary who was recently killed by natives on North Sentinel Island. I know there, there are plenty of people criticizing him. There are even fellow Christians who are questioning his methods. And, and you know, I think there, there's a legitimate debate over his methods. But, church, I, I would be wary of questioning his motives. Because with the release of his journal entries, it becomes clear that he truly pitied the Sentinelese. He saw that they are human beings created in the same image of our Creator, and they share the same fallen condition as we do. And without redemption in Christ, they will pass through this life on into the next to face judgment and eternal hell. So before we make a critical comment about John Chow's methods, we ought to commend his compassion and confess how dull and callous ours is in comparison. We ought to thank the Lord for this brother and hope that his sacrifice fuels a greater compassion for the lost in all of us. But for that to happen, we need to confront our own self-righteousness. And I believe the best way is to confront the great and merciful compassion of God in the gospel. This leads to our third and final point. If we want to root out the self-righteousness in our hearts, then it must be confronted by the compassion of God. So look with me at what the Lord says in the last verse, verse 11. This is how the book ends. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? What's interesting is that the word for pity here in verse 11 literally refers to having tears in one's eyes. That word pity is used all over the Old Testament. It's usually used to tell the Israelites not to pity the one who is under God's judgment. So you're going to read verses in the Old Testament uh, saying things like, "Your, your eye shall not pity them. Your eye shall have no pity. So it's always connected with the eyes. It's basically saying, don't shed a tear for them. But here, it says that God pities Nineveh. He is shedding a tear for them. The Lord is crying for their salvation. If you look in verse 11, he gives us two reasons why. First, he points to the sheer size of Nineveh. God is so moved to pity because we're talking about 120,000 souls 120,000 image bearers of God who are heading to either one of two destinations, eternal life or eternal condemnation. That is what makes God cry. The second reason is because the Ninevites don't know their right hand from their left. Now, that's just an idiom for their spiritual confusion and spiritual lostness. It's referring to their inability to make the right moral judgments. Now, of course, that doesn't lead God to overlook their sins and wickedness, but it does move God to pity them in spite of their sins and wickedness. And that's how the book ends. 
right there in verse 11, with God pitying the Ninevites. The book of Jonah ends with the Lord weeping over a great city. It's a very dramatic way to end. It's a very unique picture that we're given. Really, you do not see a picture like this in the pages of Scripture really until you get to the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 19, we're told it's on the first Palm Sunday, and we're told that Jesus is riding a donkey into the great city of Jerusalem. And Luke 19, verse 41 says, as he draws near to the city, Jesus begins to weep. In Matthew's account of the exact same event, he records Jesus weeping as well and saying, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. So Jesus does not discount or ignore the fact that Jerusalem has killed the prophets of God. They've committed heinous crimes, and yet they are not too far gone beyond his compassion. Unlike Jonah, Jesus, he overlooks a great city, and he weeps for the lost. In many ways, Jesus functions as an antitype to Jonah. Jesus' obedience and his compassion are really set in contrast to the Old Testament prophet. In fact, in Luke chapter 11, verse 32, Jesus actually describes himself as a greater Jonah. And it really makes sense when you think about it. In our story, in this book of Jonah, Jonah goes outside the city to do what? To root for its destruction. But in the gospel story, Jesus, he also goes outside of the city to do what? To rescue it. To accomplish salvation for it. By dying on a cross for the forgiveness of sins. God's tears that were shed for sinners in Jonah chapter 4, do you realize they find their ultimate expression in the cross of Jesus Christ? At the cross, we are confronted by God's compassion at its fullest, at its brightest. He pities poor sinners like you and me, and in Christ, he dies in our place. He turns aside his own fierce anger, and he relents from bringing down judgment upon our heads. And in, in so doing, in showing such mercy in his willingness to relent, God in no way neglects or violates his own justice because the gospel tells us that justice will always be served in the end. Evil and evildoers will never get away with it in the end because in the end, for every single person, justice will either fall on your own head on that last day or 
justice will have already fallen on the head of your Savior when he died on the cross in your place. Friends, what's going to happen to you on that last day? Is justice still coming for you, or has it already been served through your Savior? This little book of Jonah demonstrates that God is more than willing to forgive you. He is more than willing to show you compassion. If you have yet to turn from your evil ways, turn from your sins, and to receive his great mercy, then friend, today is the day of salvation for you. Today is the day that you should cry out to him asking for that mercy. And for us Christians, those who have received this mercy, have experienced this compassion, we still need to confront the compassion of God and to expose the self-righteousness that's still remaining in our hearts. So whether we're tempted at times to think that some people don't deserve salvation or maybe they just don't even need it, let's let the gospel confront us. Because the gospel says that we are all more sinful than we assume. But God is more merciful than we ever imagined. Everyone needs salvation. No one deserves it. And yet God offers it freely to us in Christ. His compassion and his mercy know no end. So let there be no end to our praying. Let there be no end to our efforts to go and tell the lost about this God of compassion. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your pity. We do not deserve your pity, your compassion, your mercy, and yet you make it available to us through faith in your son, Jesus, who died for pitiful sinners like us. Stir up our hearts with great pity and compassion for the lost, the lost that are in our lives, in our own homes, in our neighborhoods, in our schools and workplaces, in this great city of Houston, but also to the ends of the earth where there are lost people who don't even have a Christian in their life to tell them about Jesus. Oh, Lord, if you're stirring up something in one of us here, if you're calling us to do something radical about it, by your Spirit, make that clear to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.